mic on. Hi there, folks. This is Joseph again. And on this next presentation, we're going to go dive into Chapter 6 of Revelation. It's called The Source of Spiritual Power. So in this chapter, you will hear who the source of spiritual power is. We all know who it is, but for those of you who don't, you will hear about it in this episode. I hope you find this inspiring and informative and extremely educational. Thank you. What does the future hold? Where can we find certainty in a world of uncertainty? The Book of Revelation provides hopeful answers for today, tomorrow, and forever. Join Mark Finley, author and world-renowned speaker, on a journey into the future with Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. We're back again for another study on the Book of Revelation. Revelation unmasks the plans of Satan and reveals the plans of God in these last days of earth's history. Understanding revelation is crucial for every believer, every Christian, in fact, for everybody in the world. So as we enter into this important topic today, let's bow our heads to pray. Father in heaven, reveal to us the truths of your word. Help us to see clearly the majesty, the beauty of Christ as we study. And as we look tonight at the great power of Jesus to change lives in Revelation. Give us hope and confidence, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Our topic for this presentation is titled, Revelation's Source of Spiritual Power. Let's begin by going on a journey. We're traveling to the island of Patmos. Patmos is in the Aegean Sea. There are really two ways to get to Patmos. You can travel from Greece, and if you travel from Greece, it will take you overnight on a boat. The journey might be a little rough on the sea, so I much prefer going from Turkey. From Turkey, you travel from a little port city called Kusadashi. I've made that trip many a time, and it's about a two-hour journey. Traveling from Kusadashi, you often will see the beauties of nature because the sea is very tranquil, very peaceful. It's just an absolute magnificent journey. We're traveling to the island of Patmos to discover why early Christians had such death-defying faith. We're traveling there because we want to explore what was the depth of their commitment to Christ and why they could face such persecution, why they could face death and yet not yield their faith. Let me give you a little background of Patmos. Patmos is about nine miles long. As you come into the port, it becomes quite obvious that the island is rocky. It was a barren outcrop in the days of John when he was exiled there. It's the end of the first century, and John is tried by the pagan Roman emperor Domitian. Domitian claimed himself to be a god, and because John refused to give him allegiance, obeisance, because John refused to burn incense to the Caesars, John was exiled on the island of Patmos. It was there during that exile, during that period of time after being persecuted, after being threatened, after being beaten, that John was sent there to the island of Patmos. And what we're exploring in this program is what is it 
that gave these Christians that living faith within? Why didn't they compromise in the, for, in the face of such oppression? What enabled them to hold on? While John was on the island of Patmos, God revealed to him the message from the book of Revelation. While he was there, the island was illuminated, at least John's mind was, with the glory of God as he received those visions in the book of Revelation. John saw Jesus anew. He saw Jesus afresh. He was reminded again on that island of the Christ that he walked with, the Christ that he talked with, the Christ that worked so many miracles that John personally witnessed as Jesus touched the eyes of the blind and they were opened, as Jesus ministered to the sick and the dying and John saw them healed. He was reminded by that angel visitor who gave him the vision of revelation. He was reminded of the majesty, the power, the greatness of Christ. John on that island began to carefully write down, carefully chronicle, this power of the living Christ, because of what John saw in Christ's life when he walked and talked with him, because of what John experienced in Christ's life, and because of the visions that God gave to him in the book of Revelation, John's faith just soared. The old man with a weather-beaten face, with deeply etched lines in his face, with graying hair and trembling hand, wrote down, that vision in the book of Revelation. John writes in Revelation 1 verse 9, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ. John says, are you facing trials? Are you facing difficulties? Are you facing challenges in your life? I am your companion in tribulation and Christ has lit up my life and he will light up your life too. John isolated, John persecuted, John oppressed, John separated from family and friends. You would think the man would have been discouraged. You think he would have been downhearted. You think that he would have given up his faith. You think he would have said, God, I've served you all my life and where are you now? But John knew something about Jesus. He knew the promise of Christ in Matthew chapter 28, verse 20, where Jesus said, Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the world. So when John writes, he writes, I, John, both your brother and companion in tribulation, in kingdom and patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. John was there not because he was an unbeliever, but because he was a believer. But what gave him such death-defying faith? What was it that moved John to be so faithful to Christ in the face of these circumstances? John writes words of hope to you and to me. Revelation 1, verse 17 and 18, he says, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. This is the message that John records about Jesus. Jesus is speaking to John, and Jesus is speaking to you. He's speaking to me in this passage when Jesus says, do not be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. 
And behold, I am alive, Jesus says forevermore. And for John, that made the difference. For John, that made all the difference. Jesus was more than a good man. Jesus was more than an ethical philosopher. Jesus was more than a good religious teacher. Jesus was more than simply a moral figure in this earth's history. Jesus never had a beginning. He was the first and the last alpha, the first letter of the Greek alphabet, omega, the last letter. Jesus says, I'm the first and the last. No beginning, no ending. I've existed with the Father from eternity. And he says, I was dead, but I'm alive forevermore. See, that made all the difference. If Christ is divine, if Christ is eternal, then although our earthly lives can be threatened and taken from us, Jesus indeed can give us life eternal. And when John listened to the living Christ say to him, I have the keys of Hades and death, that made all the difference because John knew that even if his life were taken, even if he died, that eternal life awaited for him. John knew definitely that there was something beyond. You see, if Jesus is resurrected from the dead, he is more than human. He's divine. If Jesus went into the grave and came out, if the resurrected Christ came forth from the grave with new life, he has power over the grave. So therefore, John and the believers down through the century were willing to face death because they knew that beyond death, there was a new world waiting for them. They knew that one day Christ would come. One day the dead would be resurrected. They knew that Jesus was divine. And friend, if Jesus is really divine, then his offer of eternal life is real. If Jesus is really divine, if he's not simply a good man, if he's not simply an ethical philosopher, if he's not simply a good moral teacher, if Christ is everything that he claimed to be, then his promise of eternal life is what really matters in life. You know, our lives come and they go. I think about it in relation to my own life. I've been preaching the gospel, standing on the great platforms of the world now for more than 50 years standing preaching to tens of thousands of people. And I think how quickly your life goes on. You know, I was thinking about aging the other day and somebody said this to me. They said, you know you're getting old if you bend over to tie your shoe and you say, what else can I do when I'm down here? You know you're getting old. You know, I, I remember so often when I was young, I used to speak really fast. I've slowed down some bit. And uh, I would walk on the platform. I mean, really pace back and forth and back and forth. And in those years, we didn't have microphones like this. Uh, no countrymen's at all. When I started preaching, we just had a microphone and it had one of these long cords on the back. So I'd always take the microphone, tie it around my neck. It was one of these large microphones and stick the cord someplace back out of my suit and try to have the cord behind me so I didn't get my legs all wrapped up in it. And as I was walking along, this cord is coming out of me like a tail coming out of my backside. 
And one night I was preaching, I was really excited, I was young and speaking really fast and this chord's coming out of my backside and a little kid on the front row turned to his mother, he didn't know I heard, heard him, and he said, hey mom, is that where they plug that guy in to give him all the energy? <laughs> you know, sometimes now I wish I had one of those chords. Aging is something that we all experience. We live and we die. And unless Jesus comes, every one of us are headed to the grave. We're headed to the grave where our bodies decay, where bones are just left. Is that all there is? If Christ is not divine, there is little hope over the grave. There's little hope after death. If Christ was not really resurrected from the dead, if this living Christ who John believed in, who John gave his life for, if he's just a good man, then the grave is a dark hole in the ground and death is a long night without a morning. But Scripture is true. Jesus Christ is really divine and his offer of eternal life is real. If Jesus is divine, more than simply offering us eternal life, as important and as valuable as that is, but if he's really divine, he can change our lives today. He can make us new men and new women. We can live again with this Christ. John was willing to die rather than give up his belief in this divine Christ because Christ had changed his life and he knew that the promise of eternal life was real. He knew that Christ could offer him eternal life. Down through the ages, through Roman persecution, through the persecutions of the past, Christians have faced the stake. They have faced martyrdom. They've faced the lions in the Colosseum because they believed that Christ was divine. They knew that death was a little matter because of the living Christ. And in modern times, many a Christian has been imprisoned. Totalitarian states, authoritarian regimes have imprisoned Christians and they've experienced horrible, unspeakable torture. Why? Because they believed that Jesus was more than a good man. They believed that Jesus was more than an ethical philosopher. They believed that Jesus was more than a moral teacher. They believed that Jesus Christ was divine. You look at the Middle Ages and you look at the Waldenses who faithfully studied the Bible and when they were attacked by the armies of Rome, many of their children were thrown over mountain cliffs, dashed on the rocks below. Hundreds, thousands of these people were destroyed mercilessly. Why? Why would they hang on? Why would they not give up their faith? Because they believed in the reality of eternal life that Jesus Christ could give them. We see that down through the ages. We see it through the scriptures. We see it in the early centuries. We see it in the Middle Ages. We see it now in our generation. But what evidence that they have that Christ was divine? Was their faith built merely on an emotional feeling within? Was it based on some kind of electrical impulse that goes up and down the spine? Their faith was based on something much more solid than that. Their faith was based on something that would last and endure, not a warm, fuzzy feeling in their hearts. 
You see, all the books of the Bible meet and end in the book of Revelation. And as the result of that, when you study Scripture and you go from Genesis to Revelation, you find why John and the other believers had such death-defying faith. This book, Revelation, chapter 1, verse 1, says it's the revelation of Jesus Christ. It sums up all the evidence down through Scriptures that Christ was who He claimed to be and that His offer of eternal life was real. Let's go back and see some things that Jesus said about Himself. We turn now to John chapter 6, verse 38. Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. Now, notice what Jesus said about Himself. He said, I live with the Father in heaven. I've come down from heaven. Jesus claimed to be the eternal Christ. Jesus said in John chapter 5, verse 39, you search the Scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, and these are they that testify of me. So, all of Scripture testifies of who Jesus is. They testify of His divinity. They testify that He was more than a good man. All of Scripture testifies that Christ was the divine Son of God. Jesus claimed to be the great I Am. He claimed to live with the Father in heaven forever. Now, let's look at this idea. Let's probe this a little more. Let's suppose for purpose of discussion that Christ was not divine. For purpose of our discussion, let's suppose that Christ was simply a good man. Let's suppose for our purpose of discussion that Christ was a moral teacher. If that is true, and He claimed to be divine, He claimed to be eternal, He claimed to be the divine Son of God, then you have one of only a couple alternatives. One, that Jesus could have been lying. He said He was the divine Son of God. If He was not, was He consciously lying? How could you claim that and read Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Sermon on the Mount? How, how could you claim that Jesus was lying and look at the moral, ethical claims of Christ? Even those people who deny His divinity say that His ethical claims are some of the highest in the world. I mean, if your enemy slaps you one cheek, turn the other. Do not overcome evil, be overcome with evil, but overcome evil with good. You look at the claims of Christ, and even atheists say this is the highest moral ethic in the world. But you can't have it both ways. You can't say, well, Jesus is a liar and He has this high moral ethic. But then you could say, well, maybe he, he wasn't telling the truth, but He didn't know He wasn't telling the truth. What do you call that, a person who's not telling the truth and they don't know it? You call him a crazy person? How could you ever say Christ is a crazy person? I mean, you look at the miracles that He wrought that are recorded in Scripture. You look at the statements that He made, some of the most profound. So, if He's not lying and He's not a crazy person and He says He comes down from heaven repeatedly and He says He's eternal, the only alternative is to study the evidence and see what the evidence says. The only logical alternative is that Christ is all that He claimed to be. So, let's explore that evidence, that evidence about Jesus, that evidence in the Old Testament. Remember what Jesus has said? He said, search the Scriptures, for they are they that do what? What do they do, everybody? They testify, Jesus said, of me. So, let's look through the Old Testament and see how the Scriptures of the Old Testament do testify of Jesus. The prophecies of the Old Testament point out 
that Jesus Christ was divine. Many of these prophecies are very specific, and they take you down through the ages of time. These prophecies were given by the prophets of the Old Testament hundreds, some of them thousands of years in advance. The first prophecy deals with a life written beforehand. In fact, Jesus' biography was written beforehand. Most people's biography was written after they die, or some write autobiographies while they're still alive. But Jesus' biography, surprisingly enough, was not written after he died. Neither was his biography necessarily written while he was still alive, but his biography was written well in advance. We see in the prophecies of the Old Testament the place of Jesus' birth, the manner of his birth. We see the betrayal of Christ and the events that surrounded it uh, revealed ahead of time, and we see the manner of his death revealed in advance. All of these things were revealed hundreds, yes, that's right, hundreds, and some of them thousands of years in advance. Let's begin with the birthplace of Christ, Micah chapter 5, verse 2. Micah makes this prediction 700 years in advance. And Micah says, Bethlehem, out of you shall come forth to me the one to be ruler in Israel. How did Micah know 700 years in advance that Christ would be born in Bethlehem? There are so many places that Jesus could have been born. You remember the hometown of Jesus was not Bethlehem at all. His hometown was Nazareth. And uh, Nazareth is in the north part of Israel in Galilee. Bethlehem is more south in or central in Judea. The journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem and then on to Bethlehem was 90 miles or 150 kilometers. Now, let me ask you a question. I want you to imagine Mary is nine months pregnant. A decree goes out by Caesar Augustus that all the world is going to be taxed. Mary and Joseph travel on a donkey. Now, I'm not sure if the viewers of this telecast are going to travel on a donkey if you're a woman and you're pregnant nine months. Most American women and most women around the world don't take donkey rides at nine months pregnant for 90 miles. But Mary and Joseph go on that journey, that arduous journey, and they travel these 90 miles. Why wasn't the baby born along the way? Why wasn't the baby born uh, in Jerusalem 700 years before? Micah the prophet predicted of all the thousands of cities in Judah that Christ would be born in one city, Bethlehem. How could he pick out that one city? The Bible is not a common book. The prophets of the Bible write with divine insight. And Jesus Christ is not a common man. Mary and Joseph come to Bethlehem. The exact night of Jesus Christ's birth. Miraculously, Christ is born exactly where the Bible says he would be. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 7, verse 14, Isaiah the prophet makes another prediction over 600 years before the birth of Christ when he says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, 
and shall call his name Emmanuel. Again, a virgin would conceive. And Emmanuel means God with us. How did Isaiah the prophet know that Jesus would be born of a virgin? Do you remember the experience in Matthew's gospel where it discusses the angel coming to Mary? Mary finds that she's pregnant. Mary finds that she is with child. She's troubled by that. She's never been with man. And as the result of that, she's embarrassed, confused. She doesn't know what's going on. And the angel comes to her, explains to her that her pregnancy is the result of a divine conception, that the Holy Spirit conceives Christ in the womb of Mary. And Jesus' birth was supernatural. He, the divine Son of God, unlike any human being, born not naturally but supernaturally. Christ is more than a good man, more than an ethical philosopher. But the divine Son of God predicted. You see, Christianity is not based on a whim. Christianity is not based on a fancy. Christianity is not based on some warm feeling. Christianity is based on substance. The prophecies of the Old Testament revealed very clearly who Christ is, the divine Son of the living God. The angel comes to Mary in the Gospel of Luke, records it as well as Matthew. And the angel says to her, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son and shall call his name Jesus, exactly in fulfillment to the prophecy of Isaiah made 700 years or 600 in some odd years, almost 680 years before we see the prophecies fulfilled with precision, with accuracy. Now, you remember when Jesus is born in Bethlehem, the angels sing, glory to God in the highest. The angels salute his birth with song. The angels sing praise and glory to the divine Son of God coming forth from the womb of Mary in that humble circumstance in Bethlehem. Jesus, the divine Son of God. Now, one of the oldest prophecies regarding the birth of Christ comes from Numbers chapter 14, verse 70. Chapter 24, rather, verse 70. And Numbers says this, a star shall come out of Jacob. Do you remember the story of the wise men coming from the east? One of their prophets had predicted that a star would be in the sky leading them to the Messiah. And as they read this prophecy, the star shall come out of Jacob, the wise men sensed something unusual, something supernatural. They sensed that indeed the Messiah was to be born. They followed that star until the bright, luminous body stayed in the heavens over Bethlehem. And the wise men came to Bethlehem. How did the Bible know? Hundreds of years in advance that a star would guide the wise men. How did the Bible know hundreds of years in advance that Jesus would be born of a virgin? How did the Bible know that hundreds of years in advance that Jesus would be born in Bethlehem? See, it's not one prophecy. Prophecy after prophecy 
prophecies that are really precise, prophecies that are really accurate, prophecies that are too specific to be given by guesswork or by accident. These prophecies reveal who Jesus is. Are you beginning to see, are you beginning to understand why John on the island of Patmos had such death-defying faith? Are you beginning to sense why he believed that Jesus Christ was the Messiah? He saw the fulfillment of these prophecies of the Old Testament. He understood clearly who Jesus Christ was. When we come to that understanding that Christ is divine, that he stands head and shoulders above any earthly leader, when we come to that understanding, we fall at our feet and worship him like the wise men did. We fall at our feet like these wise men did who followed the star because wise men and wise women still come to the Lord Jesus Christ. They still kneel before him and give them their gifts, the gifts of their worship, the gifts of their praise, the gifts of their talents, the gifts of their lives because this divine Christ invites us to come. He says, come unto me, all you that are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Now, the prophecies of Isaiah not only predict that Jesus would be born of a virgin, but the prophecies of Isaiah predict the very ministry of Christ. Isaiah chapter 61 verse 1 says, the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to the brokenhearted. Just pause and think of that prophecy for one moment. The prophecy which says, the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. Men and women, poor in spirit. Men and women discouraged with the guilt and shame of their sin. Men and women who are poverty stricken and longing for eternal life. Jesus came and he preached good tidings. The good news that through his grace and by his power they could be saved in his kingdom. The Bible says he came to preach good tidings to the poor. He sent me to heal the brokenhearted. Think about that woman at the well, that Samaritan woman in John the fourth chapter. She's broken. She's bruised. She's crushed. Men have used her body as a plaything, but she has little value and little worth, and she meets Christ. And he satisfies the longing of her soul, satisfies that inner thirst that she has for purpose and meaning in life. Jesus came, and he preached good tidings to the poor. Jesus came, and he healed the brokenhearted. Our text goes on. He came to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those that are bound. Think about it. Those captive by sin, those shackled by the habits of sin, think of it. He opens the prison to those that are bound, those that are possessed with demons and demoniacs. He delivers them. I have seen God do that. The living Christ touched men and women then, and he can touch men and women today. I remember on one occasion I was preaching in Mexico. It was in a large stadium in Mexico City. There were probably... 12,000 people in the stadium, and I was making an appeal, 
an appeal for men and women to come to Jesus, an appeal for men and women to experience the power of Christ in their life. I was preaching this very message that you're hearing tonight, showing from prophecy that Jesus is the divine Son of God, showing that He could break the shackles of sin and that men and women could go free. As I made the appeal and people began to come forward, there were many at the altar. But then I looked through the crowd and I saw two men carrying a woman down the aisle. One man, who I learned later was her husband, had her underneath her arms carrying her, and the other man had her by her feet. What I didn't know at the time was this woman was sitting in the meeting. She had been dabbling in demon worship. And when I began to make the appeal for Christ, she ran out of the auditorium, was lying in the parking lot, screaming and writhing. Her husband and this man carried her down the aisle. Now, they dropped her there at my feet. I looked at the woman. It didn't appear she was breathing. And I looked down at her, and I knelt before her. All these other people were standing there. It was hot and oppressive. And as I began to pray over her, she screamed, and she began to kick and kick and kicked me and was screaming and wailing. I had just talked about the power of God. 12,000 people were in the auditorium. Is the power of God real? And as I prayed over this woman, and continued to pray that Jesus would deliver her, she fell limp. Now, don't misunderstand me. Not every case that claims to be demon-possessed is. There are certain psychological problems that people may have that may manifest themselves in, in symptoms. There are three levels of demonic impression, oppression. First, every one of us can be tempted by the devil. That's one level of demonic activity. We can be tempted by the devil. Jesus was tempted by the devil. He never yielded. That's demonic activity. There also can be another level of demonic activity, and that's oppression. The more you yield to the temptations of Satan, the more oppressed you can be. And then there also, if a person chooses to worship at the altar of Satan, they can become possessed by demons. Now, the devil can't just come in and take over your mind. That's totally impossible. Um, unless we have a choice, a volitional choice of the will. Because if the devil can just come in and take over our mind without any choice of our will, he could come and take over anybody. God respects human freedom. But if we choose to walk in the way of the evil one, choose to worship at the shrine of the occult, we open our mind to those demonic activities. As I prayed over this woman, she fell limp. We set her on a chair, finished the appeal, and we took her off to the side. There was a little sparkle in her eyes, and she said, I'm delivered. I'm delivered. She was. We got her now reading the Bible. I shared with her that wonderful book, Steps to Christ. And week after week, this woman followed Jesus. This woman was delivered by the grace of Christ. What does Scripture say? Jesus came to proclaim liberty to the captives. He did that then, and He still does it now. He came to open the prison for those that were bound. He did it then, and He still does it now. The Scripture is very, very clear when it talks about the power of Christ. He delivered. He, Jesus, healed. Jesus forgave throughout Scripture, we see this Christ who's powerful, this Christ who heals, this Christ who forgives, this Christ who walks into people's life, this Christ that raised men and women from the dead. We see this Jesus throughout Scripture, more than divine, 
more than a good man, more than an ethical philosopher, but the divine almighty son of the living God. Now, the prophecies at the end of Christ's life, those prophecies came to very sharp focus. Those prophecies came to very specific fulfillment. Some of the most amazing prophecies ever given were given at the end of Christ's life. Let's look at them. We'll go to the city of Jerusalem. Jesus spent the last hours of his life here in Jerusalem. And there in that city, we find one of the most amazing prophecies. Jesus is celebrating the Last Supper. His disciples are gathered around him. And Jesus says to him, one here, one of my disciples will indeed betray me. The disciples are shocked, but soon Judas leaves the Last Supper and he goes out on his fateful mission to betray Christ. But did you realize that the betrayal of Jesus was predicted over a thousand years in advance? Listen to how it's put in the book of Psalms. Psalm 41, verse 9. Even my own friend, my familiar friend, in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. A familiar friend, one who would be eating that communion supper with Christ. That one would betray Christ. Did you notice what the text said? The one whom I trusted, one who ate bread with me, my familiar friend. Psalm 41, a thousand years before Christ, predicted the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. But yet, the prophecy becomes even more exact. It becomes even more precise. Do you remember how much Jesus was betrayed for? You remember it? What was it? You're right. It was 30 pieces of silver. Did you know that that prediction was in the Bible too? Zechariah the prophet predicts, chapter 11, verse 12 and 13, so they wait out for my wages. What was it? 30 pieces of silver. Why was it not 35 pieces of silver? Why when Jesus was betrayed, why wasn't it 42 pieces of silver? Why was it precisely 30 pieces of silver? 30 pieces of silver was the price of a slave in the days of Christ. You know, prices fluctuate. The price of a loaf of bread today is different than the price of a loaf of bread 50 years ago. The price of gasoline for your car is different today than it was 30 years ago. How did Zechariah know hundreds of years in advance that the exact price of a slave would be 30 pieces of silver? How did he know that Jesus would be betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver? When you look at the precision of these prophecies, they are amazing. Now, this particular prophecy goes on. It tells us the amount that Jesus would be betrayed for, 30 pieces of silver. But not only does it tell us the amount that Christ would be betrayed for, but it tells us the result. In other words, what would happen with the money. Now, you recall exactly what the Bible teaches and what the Bible says. After Judas betrayed Christ for that 30 pieces of silver, he began to feel so discouraged, so disappointed, so shamed in what he did that he came back to the priests, he threw that blood money down on the floor. What did they do with the blood money? They took it 
and bought a field to bury strangers in. They took that money and purchased that field as a burial ground. What does the Bible say about what would happen to that money? What does it say not only about the result, Judas throwing the money on the floor in the temple, but the place that would be purchased? The Bible is incredibly precise. Matthew chapter 27, verse 5, then he threw down the piece of silver in the temple and he departed. Exactly what the Bible said would happen. But then Scripture goes on, and they consulted together, and they bought with them a potter's field to bury strangers in. That's what Zechariah's prophecy said would happen. Hundreds of years in advance, it's predicted with Zechariah, and then Matthew describes the historical events of what happened, and it happened exactly as the Bible predicted. The prophecies of the last 24 hours of Christ's life come, they come to a focal point predicting exact details that would take place right around the cross of Calvary. Look at Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says this, I gave my back to those who struck me and I gave my cheeks to those who pluck out, plucked out my beard. You remember the story well. Christ is lashed to a column. He is stripped to the waist. The executioner approaches Jesus and it, the Bible says in Isaiah 50, verse 6, I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. They come and they spit in his face. They take that leather whip. And as they do, the leather whip is embedded with jagged metal and bone. And they whip him again and again and again. The whip is wrapped around him. The executioner pulls it back and it rips out the flesh of Christ. Many people going through that beating, many people going through that whipping, died from the loss of blood. There, they took a crown of thorns and they jammed it upon his head. Blood ran down his face. They whipped him and beat him again and again and again in that flagellation. But yet, this was predicted hundreds of years in advance. Jesus' biography not written after he died, written before he died, and confirmed in the New Testament in the writings of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Jesus, of course, tried there before Pilate. And Pilate says, who shall I release to you? Shall it be Christ or Barabbas? And the crowd cries out, release unto us Barabbas. What shall I do with Christ? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Come with me to Calvary's cross. Come with me and watch the nails driven through his hands. Come with me and watch the spear wound in his side. Who is this that hangs between heaven and earth? Who is this who hangs on this cross with blood running down his face, with sorrow in his eyes. Who is this who hangs there? He is Jesus, the one worshipped by 10,000 times 10,000 angels, the one who at very, his very word, angels winged their way to worlds afar, the one who cast this world into space, the one who is at whose very word he created sun, moon, and stars. Who is this that hangs there? The divine Christ, the creator of the universe. Who is this with the blood-tinged face? 
Who is this crying out on that cross of Calvary, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Who is this? More than a good man. More than an ethical philosopher. More than a moral teacher. He is the divine Son of God tabernacling in human flesh. If Christ is not divine, He cannot offer you eternal life. If He didn't live from eternity with no beginning and no ending, He can't give you a life with no ending. He is Jesus, the divine Son of God. And all the demons in hell could not destroy the faith of Jesus. On that cross, He triumphed over the principalities and powers of hell. And there hanging on that cross, two thieves, one on either side of him. And one thief looks and says, if you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. He could have come down. He could have called 10,000 angels. But the other thief says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus looks at that thief and says, I say to you today, this day that it looks like I can't save anybody, this day with nails through my hands, this day with a crown of thorns upon my head, this day of darkness, I say to you today, you will be with me in heaven. There's never been a man, never been a woman, who sincerely and honestly asked for God's grace and forgiveness and not found it. He is the divine Son of God. He can offer you forgiveness. He can offer you grace. He can offer you mercy this very day. Wherever you are, the death of Christ was for you. Will you turn your back on that death? Will you walk away from that grace? Will you turn your back on that mercy? You know, the Bible predicts that Christ would be crucified. It's quite fascinating. You look at Psalm 22, verse 16, a thousand years in advance, David says, they pierce my hands and my feet. Now, here's the question. How did David know? How did he know that Christ would be crucified? Stoning was the method of capital punishment in the Old Testament. Either stoning or some people were hung by a rope on a tree. Crucifixion did not yet exist in the days of David. How did they know? You see, you remember when, when, when Mary was cast at the feet of Christ, what was the Jewish method of trying to destroy her? The Jewish Pharisees wanted to do what? They wanted to stone her. But, but yet, how was it possible that David would know that Christ would be crucified? You see, crucifixion was practiced from about 150 B.C. with the Romans. It was very common to about A.D. 320. And one of the good things that Constantine, the Roman emperor, actually did was do away with crucifixion. But it was practiced for about that 450, 470 year period. It wasn't practiced in the days of David. The Jews' method was to simply stone people. They didn't crucify them. But yet, David knew through divine prophetic insight that Christ's hands would be pierced. David knew that only because God revealed it to him. And why did God reveal these prophecies so clearly and precisely down through the centuries to show to you and to me without a shadow of a doubt that faith is not based on some warm, fuzzy feeling inside. Faith is not based on some emotional response. You don't have to check your brains at the door when you become a Christian. 
When you become a Christian, you accept the evidence, the evidence that is irrefutable, the evidence that is undeniable, the evidence that is so precise and accurate and clear from Scripture. That's why John had such death-defying faith on the island of Patmos. That's why he could write the book of Revelation at a time of persecution and oppression with such hope and confidence. That's why we can have such hope and confidence at the end, because Jesus indeed is the divine Christ. The Christ who died on Calvary's cross was more than just a good man or a philosopher. He was indeed the divine Son of God. And this living Christ who is the divine Son of God has changed the lives of thousands of people down through the centuries, and He can reach out and touch you. He can reach out and change your life this very night. This living Christ can forgive your sins. This living Christ can take away your guilt. This living Christ can take away your shame. This living Christ can give you peace. This living Christ can give you purpose. This living Christ can give you forgiveness. This living Christ can give you a reason to live today, tomorrow, and forever. Hardened Roman soldier came to the cross. And this Roman soldier was no namby-pamby, spineless jellyfish. He had seen death before. He had seen men and women hung up on the trees before. He had killed many a man. He had killed many a child. You know, the Romans at times would take a baby and throw it up in their arms the, in the viciousness of battle and uh, pierce that child with a sword. These people knew bloodshed. They knew battle. They knew war. The Roman centurion came to that cross, and he listened to Christ's words, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. He listened to Christ as he spoke to the thief and said, I'll remember you when you come into paradise. I will be there when I am ascended to the Father, and I will guarantee you eternal life based on your faith in me. The Roman centurion heard that, and this hard-hearted, calloused, Roman centurion knelt at the foot of the cross and found Christ. I don't know how hard your heart is. I don't know how many times you turned away from Christ. But I know this. This living Christ is alive. John chapter 11, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life, and he who believes in me, though he may die, yet he shall live. Jesus is alive. The tomb did not hold him. Christ's tomb is open. He's alive, and he can transform your life through the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't lying in his tomb. You see, the solution to every spiritual problem is this divine Christ. Christ still knocks on the door of human hearts today. The Christ who lived, the Christ in whose life all these prophecies were fulfilled, the Christ who hung on that cross for you, the Christ who lives for you, the Christ whose tomb is empty is reaching out to you right now. One night I was preaching in Mexico. And a family sat in about the third or fourth row, just smiling, beaming, 
eyes sparkling, husband and wife and son. And I met Jose after the meeting, and I said, your family looks to me like the model Christian family. Jose dropped his head. He looked up. He said, we have not always been this way. I said, Jose, tell me your story. He said, I was a drinking, angry man. Often, I came home and slapped my wife. Very often, I began to yell and scream. I created havoc in the family. He said, you see my son, 10 years old? One day, my son took a knife. And I had come home angry. And I was about ready to beat my wife. And my son jumped on me with this knife to stab me. And he said, I flipped him over, gave him some slaps and took the knife. But I began to recognize that something was wrong. I began to recognize that I needed a change in my life. A Christian neighbor, a Seventh-day Adventist, began to visit us. And that Adventist opened the Bible. And I began to understand about Christ. First, this believer, this Christian woman, studied the Bible with my wife and son. They had new hope and new joy, and they began to pray with me. Then I joined the Bible studies. And pastor, my life is changed. Because I said to Jesus, have thine own way, Lord. Have thine own way. I'm the potter, you're the clay. Jesus, if you're divine, take me in your hands and make me over again. Christ did that for Jose. And Christ, my friend, can do that for you as you come to him just now as Tim sings. And as you kneel and say, have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Have thine own way, Lord, have thine own way. Thou art the potter, I am the clay. And make me after thy will while I am waiting, yielded and still have thine own. Try me, Savior, today. Wash me just now, Lord. Oh, wash me just now. As in thy presence, humbly I
Is the Spirit of God touching your heart? There is somebody watching this broadcast that needs Jesus. There's somebody watching this broadcast that right now wants to say, Lord, have thine own way in my life. Lord, I need you desperately. I sense tonight that you are the divine Christ. And I sensed that without you, I'm lost. I'm powerless. Jesus, I need you, and I need you right now. The thief needed him, and he found him. The Roman centurion needed him, and he found him. Christ is reaching out to you right now. As I pray, would you like to say, Lord, have your own way in my life. Lord, I'm giving you my life right now. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he is more than a good man and an ethical philosopher. Thank you that his offer of eternal life is real, that we can reach out and have it right now. Thank you for the power of Christ that's available to us to change us, to make us over again, men and women, boys and girls. And Lord, we open our hearts and we say to you, have thine own way, Lord, in the name of Christ. Amen. Thank you for joining us for another of Revelation's Ancient Discoveries. Don't miss one of this series. We are setting a background, but we're going to go deeply into the prophecies of the book of Revelation. God bless you, and may your week be filled with His grace. On. Well, folks, this completes this, this, this little uh, lecture about the source of spiritual power. Stay tuned for the next broadcast when we will hear about Revelation's final events. Till next time, this is Joseph saying, may the Lord bless and keep you, and may his face shine on you and give you peace. Thanks for listening, folks. 
And if you want to, you can leave me anchor feedback or tap that support button if the inclination inclination, uh, strikes you. If you do, it would be much appreciated, but that's totally optional. Feedback and supporting is welcome. So, anyway, bye for now. Mic off.